Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isger. And before we start, I'm supposed to ask you, Sarah, where are you? I thought I'd give you a little quiz, David. Okay. The year is 1890. And I am in the Wall Street of the South, the second richest city per capita in the United States, uh, and second only to Ellis Island as an immigration port. Where am I? Okay. So second only to Ellis Island is an immigration port. port. Uh-huh. It's in the South and it's not going to be a huge city. Otherwise the answer would be obvious. Hmm. Galveston. You are correct. <laughs> I'm so impressed with myself. I can't even impressed. tell you. So I'm pretty impressed. Listeners, he did not have any clue where I was. Ah, boy, we can just stop the podcast right now. That's it. That's fantastic. You win. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So broadcasting, podcasting, sorry, from Galveston. Uh, Sarah and I have a great podcast for you. We're going to talk about a couple of Supreme Court cases, one involving advertising in the First Amendment, another one involving Puerto Rico with a fascinating Justice Thomas concurrence, a blistering Justice Gorsuch concurrence. Um, and then we're going to have a great conversation conversation with UT, the other UT, UT Austin, uh, law professor, Steve Vladek about emergency docket, progress, more progressive, um, jurisprudential or more progressive, uh, philosophies of jurisprudence, just lots of stuff. So it's, it's a great conversation and we're going to get to that in the last half of the podcast. But Sarah, should we start with Puerto Rico or should we start with billboards? Billboards! All right, billboards. So this was an interesting case. We talked about it before. And honestly, as I was reading through the opinions, I can't remember how I thought this should have come out because I remember talking about it. (laughs) I know. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Uh, so let's just give a little refresh here. Yes. Uh, in some ways, this is a really simple case, but in other ways, it got more complicated. Although, interestingly, in the opinion, it's really just the simple version. So the simple version is this. Um, what determines whether something is a content-based restriction? Is it anytime you have to read the speech, then you know it's content-based? Or is there something else we're looking for? So in the city of Austin, uh, there are billboards. And if you have a billboard at your business, no problem. That is an on-premises billboard and you can advertise your business. Um, But if you have an off-premises billboard, 
then these there's no more off-premises billboards being built, and the current ones were grandfathered in uh, that they couldn't change their off-premises billboard. They could change the message on it, but they couldn't digitize the signs. And so uh, some off-premise billboard holders sued, claiming that making this on-premise versus off-premise distinction violated the First Amendment because it wasn't content neutral. It was viewpoint discrimination, and it should be reviewed under strict scrutiny, meaning the state would have to have um, you know, the narrowest restriction possible and a compelling reason to do it. And so around and around we went, David. And in the end, the Supreme Court decided that this was not content-based. It was viewpoint neutral. Well, actually, what they said was it's not strict scrutiny. (laughs) Right. Facially content neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Facially content neutral, though perhaps in this case, um, it's not. uh, And that can all be worked out at the lower court. Um, But David, the real discussion was still about these, whether there's a bright line rule or a common sense rule. Interesting concurrence by Justice Breyer saying, we don't need a rule at all. It should just be common sense. Like, just decide as a judge, like, do you think this is content neutral or not? Whereas the dissenters, I thought, I'll be interested to see what you think, David. I thought made a pretty good case for why you want a bright line rule and why in this case, because you do have to read the sign to know whether, for instance, you are advertising for that business or you have a message that says, hey, the business down the road is hosting a charity event and you should go to it. Um, For instance, if you have a billboard at your business, that billboard can say um, El Arroyo is a pro-life restaurant, but it can't say choose life. Uh, And the majority is like, I mean, sorry, the dissent is like, well, that's why you need the bright line rule, because Mm -hmm. you're saying this is just common sense, but I don't think it's common sense. So, David, uh, what did you think of the majority? What did you think of the concurrences? What did you think of the dissents? Yeah, really good questions. And also, what did I think of the alignment? This was a really interesting Interesting alignment. Interesting alignment. So you have Sotomayor delivered the opinion. Roberts, Breyer, Kagan, Kavanaugh joined. Breyer filed his own concurrence. Then Alito concurred in part and dissented in part. And then Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett dissented. So all over the place. So the... This is one of those situations where I'll just be completely honest, Sarah. I read the majority. I found it compelling. I read the dissent. I found it compelling. (laughs) By the way, David, I do remember a little bit what you felt about this case. You thought that it was dumb and didn't care. And I told you I was going to make you care about billboards. You remember that? That's exactly right. And I still think I didn't care. And I think that as I read both the majority and the dissent, I feel like I don't know. I don't feel strongly either way. Uh, I can't wrong, be made David, to ca- wrong. I know. I know. So here's, he, let me just say this. The strength of the Sotomayor majority is essentially this, that look, you're not saying what the city of Austin is not saying is that signs that deal with particular subject matter are going to have one set of rules and signs that deal with another kind of subject matter have another set of rules, sort of your absolute classic content-based restrictions. The subject matter of the sign doesn't actually really mean much at all. It's the location of the sign. So this is a locational restriction, not so much a subject matter restriction. And therefore, 
the con this isn't a content based restriction. It's it's on premise versus off premise. And the dissent turns around and says, well, wait a minute. Um, hold on. You still have to sit there and like and literally read and understand the content of the sign and analyze the content of the sign to basically discover whether this is encompassed by the city code. And if you're looking at the content of a sign, you're looking at the content of a sign and that's a content-based restriction and so therefore strict scrutiny. I, I guess I left this wondering, I, it, it's one of those issues where I think I, I didn't really even understand why the Supreme Court felt the necessity to weigh in on this, to be honest. Um, if you're going to... If you're going to push me, if you're going to make me decide, I'm a little bit more with the majority in the sense that when I've when I think classically of a content-based restriction, to understand what a content-based restriction is, you're generally dealing with differences and distinctions based on subject matter. Um, and you're Here's a sign. We're going to have one set of regulations for religious signs. We're going to have one set of regulations for political signs. We're going to have one set of re regulations for commercial signs, one set of regulations for event signs. That's all content. You can understand that they're targeting different kinds of subject matter. This, which is seems more like classic zoning that's designed to sort of phase off the off-premise sign world in a kind of really gentle way. <laughs> I, if you push me, I'm with the majority and still, and still not really emotionally connected to it in any way. You're wrong on nearly every facet here. So let's run oh. through why you're wrong. Um, <laughs> okay. A, you're wrong not to care because, uh, content, like having to define when something is going to be considered content-based will become very important at some point. So just the fact that the court is wading into this means that it's important. Two, the answer here to me was Justice Alito's uh, partial concurrence, partial dissent, because as I mentioned, and I, I think this was where I thought the case would come down. Um, well, turns out I got one vote and no more. So I was pretty <laughs> wrong, but still I got one vote. And that was that they don't need to get to the content based part because this is really about whether you can digitize signs. And that was Justice Alito's quite short point here, but uh, for a facial challenge in the First Amendment overbreadth uh, field, a law restricting speech is unconstitutional if a substantial number of its applications are unconstitutional, judged in relation to the statute's plainly legitimate sweep. But in this case, the vast majority of the plaintiff's billboards, if not all of them, were these off-premise billboards that they just wanted to digitize. Well, there's no question that digitizing versus not digitizing is constitutional and content neutral. The court didn't need to get to those signs that are on premises, but want to be, you know, not commercial. David, I also think you're wrong about the content not being on a specific topic, because what this did is privilege commercial speech above non-commercial speech, which is bizarre and on its head compared to the purpose of the First Amendment. So as long as you're saying, come eat at El Arroyo, that's going to have the highest amount of protection in the city of Austin. But if you're saying anything else on that El Arroyo sign, uh, not protected. I, I just think that's bizarre. But David, here's the main thing of why you should care. 
This case wasn't about billboards at all, and you're wondering why the Supreme Court took it? Let me tell you about a case called Hill versus Colorado from 2000. <laughs> I actually bet you know this case pretty well. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to read the summary here. A Colorado statute makes it unlawful for any person within 100 feet of a healthcare facility's interest to knowingly approach within eight feet of another person without that person's consent in order to pass a leaflet, handbill, etc. This is the 15-foot abortion clinic buffer zone rule. Right. The question was, does Colorado's statutory requirement that speakers obtain consent from people within 100 feet of a healthcare facility entrance before speaking, displaying signs, violate the First Amendment rights of the speaker? Uh, it was 6-3. So Rehnquist, Stevens, O'Connor, Souter, Ginsburg, Breyer in the majority, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas in the dissent, with the majority saying... The statute is not a regulation of speech. It is a regulation of the places where some speech may occur. This was like lurking in the background of this billboard case all over the place. And so, David, let me read you from Thomas's dissent. In this case, the court nevertheless holds that the off-premises restriction is content neutral because it prescribes a sufficiently broad category of communicative content and therefore does not target specific topic or subject matter. Just what you said, David. This misinterprets <laughs> a clear rule that the court had for content-based restrictions and replaces it with an incoherent and malleable standard. I mean, saying that something's just going to be a common sense standard is about as incoherent and malleable as it can be. In doing so, the majority's reasoning is reminiscent of this court's erroneous decision in Hill v. Colorado, which upheld a blatantly content-based prohibition on counseling near abortion clinics on the ground that it discriminated against an extremely broad category of communications. What say you, David? Nope, but hold on. Before I get the nope, let me um, say, I think, aren't you kind of agreeing with me? Because you went to the Alito concurrence, which was basically like, isn't this case kind of a nothing burger about whether or not we can digitize signs? So, yes. Okay, so I'm going to unilaterally declare victory in the nothing great nothing burger debate of 2022. Um, no, but not that this decision is a nothing burger because they didn't decide it on Alito's grounds. That's what I thought they would do. That's what I thought they should do. That's what Alito thought they should do. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they then went ahead and created a whole new rule for whether something's content-based means that it's not a nothing burger and Justice Alito agrees. With the Hill case... The Hill case was transparently, absolutely targeted. It was viewpoint content targeted through a thinly disguised veneer of a location-based speech restriction. So the Hill case had viewpoint discrimination, content discrimination leaking from every pore. And if you had a fact pattern here where what was going on was, uh, a bunch of Austin businesses had began to say, choose life. And the city of Austin, in response to complaints about choose life, then implements this quote unquote neutral or content neutral regulation. Mm, you'd have a different fact pattern because when it comes to these first amendment inquiries, 
intent matters. Intent matters. I mean, this is the foundation of, for example, a retaliation claim on the basis of the first, uh, you know, First Amendment retaliation. These are these are issues where intent. Man, with Hill, the viewpoint neutrality. I mean, the viewpoint discrimination was all over the place, and the court just invented this fiction of neutrality around it. Whereas here, with the city of Austin, what appears to be going on with Austin is you've just got classic commercial, uh, commercial zoning, a, a classic commercial uh, speech zoning issue. Not nothing within shouting distance of Hill. Um, so yeah, I get what they're saying, but what was the word? The fr- word that was used, reminiscent. The word reminiscent is doing a lot of work in in that uh, in that descent. But again, I don't feel strongly about it. If you talk to me for 10, 10 more minutes, you might could tick me over to fifty point one percent, thinking that that Thomas is right. But I'm still not in the in the mode of feeling very strongly about this case. And and listeners, uh, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I am wrong, but. I'm I'm just I'm just not there, Sarah. Okay, then let's go to Puerto Rico. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, Puerto Rico, this was a case involving um the availability of social security supplemental income, SSI, uh available can is our SSI benefits or should SSI benefits be made available to residents of Puerto Rico? Uh, Puerto Rico is a, not a state; it's a territory, and so there was a question as to whether um, there was a question as to whether the applicant in this case had a right as an American citizen to receive benefits under the SSI program. This case was um, eight one; it was eight one, and with a very short majority opinion delivered by Kavanaugh, a dissenting opinion delivered by Sotomayor, and two interesting concurrences filed by Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch. Basically, um, look, the, the, the majority opinion was pretty simple. Uh, Constitution does not require Congress to extend SSI benefits. Um, it was a rational basis review that was applied here that there are some things that you, some benefits you got from being a Puerto Rican resident. Like you don't have a lot of tax obligations that you have if you're a resident of the 50 states as opposed to territory. And so if you're not going to have some of the benefit, I mean, some of the obligations, you're not going to be entitled uh, all of the benefits of citizenship in the 50 states if you're a citizen, if you're in Puerto Rico rational basis that's quite rational it's rational to allow uh, folks to exempt themselves from some obligations and if they're not going to have the same obligations they're not necessarily going to have the same benefits done oak case over super short opinion eight one but justice thomas weighed in sarah with basically a miniature version of a law review article <laughs> do you want to yeah and in fact it was so law reviewy that i was like, wait, how is this connected back? And for that matter, to some extent, the Gorsuch one as well, where they just like take this opportunity because like, you know, there's not a whole lot of opportunities to wade into these uh, uh, territory-esque cases. Basically, both of them wish they were bigger cases. And I don't mean bigger, meaning more important, although they mean that too. 
but bigger meaning broader sweeping ability to delve into some of the fun legal issues. Justice Gorsuch, of course, no surprise based on the oral argument, very much wants to state for the record that the insular cases are no longer good law and that, unfortunately, neither party asked them to overturn the insular cases, but he's here to overturn the insular cases. <laughs> right, right. And that was, I thought that concurrence was compelling and interesting. It reminds me of, um, what was it? That, oh, gosh, I'm, uh, uh, please tell me I don't get this wrong. Um, using the occasion of the travel ban case to overturn Korematsu. Yeah, although the difference was that is, I mean, the chief justice had to like kind of shoehorn it in there and be like, and this overturns Korematsu, even though <laughs> right. it didn't really need to. Yeah. Um, but he was like taking this moment to like very proudly be the one to overturn Korematsu. Uh, here, of course, it's not the majority decision to overturn the insular yeah. cases, and it's not up at all. So this is straight dicta on the insular yeah. cases. Yeah. Righteous dicta. Righteous dicta. Yeah, but nobody thought the insular cases were good law. I, I This is like, I, this is going to sound judgier than I mean it, mm-hmm. but you're not brave overturning Korematsu in 2018 or well, saying you don't think the insular cases are good law in 2022. It True. doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, but like, you know, our applause should be something less than uproarious. You couldn't possibly be accusing Justice Gorsuch of virtue signaling. <laughs> I, look, it actually is something more important than virtue signaling because it is good <laughs> to have a statement um, that the insular cases are not good law. True. True. It's just that we all knew that they weren't good law. It's still good to have it in print. So it's not virtue signaling in that sense. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's not brave. It's not just as Harlan level. Right. No, 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 no. I know. Although Harlan does figure in the dissent in in uh, cur- in Gorsuch's concurrence in the very in a very Harlan-y way, right? Very true. Okay, but we need to get to Justice Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> this is interesting because I'm reading along and I had not Sarah, I had not checked Twitter beforehand. So, um I'm reading and I, by sentence two, not just one eyebrow is raised, both eyebrows are raised. So sentence one is, I join the opinion of the court. Sentence two, I write separately to address the premise that the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment contains an equal protection component whose substance is precisely the same as the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. Okay, this <laughs> ought to be interesting. Although I've joined the court in applying this doctrine. I now doubt whether it comports with the original meaning of the Constitution, firmer ground for prohibiting the federal government from discriminating on the basis of race, at least with respect to civil rights, may well be found in the 14th Amendment's Citizenship Clause. So essentially what Thomas is doing here, and as we'll discuss a little bit later in uh, our, our interview with Steve Laddick, is saying he's getting back on one of his hobby horses that is essentially saying that a lot of American jurisprudence has been um, lo- a, a lot of American sort of the jurisprudence that has been used to extend the the blessings of liberty, so to speak, to broader classes of Americans has been rooted in the wrong place. And um, Justice Thomas has been kind of on the warpath, saying, "Wait a minute." Th- Look, I might get to the same place as you, but I'm coming through a different gate. 
And so section one of the 14th Amendment says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And then it goes on to say, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And what he's saying is that this section one, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside, carries with it implications of equality. Um, Sarah, is that a fair way to summarize it? Yes. And so therefore he says that the school desegregation case, um, and this is, this is just fascinating that he did this. So he goes on to say that essentially the school desegregation case. So there was a, there were, was Brown versus board of education that was, um, desegregated schools at the federal, at the state level, um, that, that, and there was a, and also a case called Bowling v. Sharp that confronted the constitutionally of government imposed segregation in DC's public schools. Um, and because the segregation was attributable to Congress rather than state action, the 14th amendment's equal protection clause did not apply so Bowling instead read an equal protection principle into the Fifth Amendment, uh, which states no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And, and Thomas says, that was just made up. That was just made up. What you actually need to do is apply the citizenship clause. Okay. Can, can we translate to everyone kind of what's going on here? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, and we haven't really delved into this on our podcast, David, but there are people out there who very much are in favor of school desegregation, but yeah. think that Brown v. Board and Bowling v. Sharp have legal infirmities mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how they were decided and how they were written. But it doesn't really matter because everyone's happy with the outcome and nobody wants to be the person who's against school desegregation. And so it just doesn't get a lot of attention. And here comes yeah. Justice Thomas, hold my beer on Bowling v. Sharp. Um, and look, in some respects, it might be because he's the only person who can really raise at a high level that Bowling v. Sharp might not, the outcome might be good, but the reasoning might be bad and it might have all these unintended consequences. The problem for me, David, is even if I take his law review-esque point that uh, equal protection is not built into the Fifth Amendment, either textually or uh, substantively or anything else. I don't think there's been a lot of adverse consequences to that Bowling v. Sharp problem, if it is a problem. Yeah, no. And the interesting Unlike, thing for is, for instance, by the way, the conversation we're going to have with Steve Vladek about getting rid of the Privileges and Immunities Clause and reading that into the 14th Amendment, that has created a bunch of problems. Right, right. And the interesting thing is here is that he says the textual source of the obligation, this sort of obligation of legal equality, the textual source resides in the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause. And it says that clause provides 
All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Wait, that's the textual source of an equal protection obligation? Textual source? Um, Interesting. And then he says, as I sketch out briefly below, considerable historical evidence suggests that the citizenship clause was adopted against a longstanding political and legal tradition that closely associated the status of citizenship with the entitlement to legal equality. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I can see it. I can, I, I, I can see it. Um, I, I can't see it, though, super textually. <laughs> um, I can well, see it again, from... Well, again, David, uh, unlike the Privileges and Immunities Clause debate, I'm not sure I see why it matters too terribly much. Now, obviously, he's putting it in the context of this Puerto Rico case where what the citizenship clause means um, matters more than in some other cases. But if his point is Bowling v. Sharp turns out the same way, but with a different clause, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was just, uh, it was very interesting. And Justice Thomas has had a, He's kind of had a kind of a recent pattern of what I would say using cases as an opportunity for some musing. He has mused on social media, um, for example. He he used, I believe, as a dissent from denial of cert to muse about is there a me- means or a mechanism to regulate moderation on social media? Just amusing, and this is um, also more musing from Justice Thomas. Hmm. Just as a kind of an intellectual exercise, how am I getting to the exact same outcome of bowling through a different mechanism? Um, and but everyone you didn't kind find of, it persuasive. I think I kind of found it persuasive. I mean, I, f- I found it interesting. Um, I found it interesting and I, I definitely see the logic to it. And I do think, as I say later on in our, as you, you guys could tell, we've already recorded the uh, interview with Professor Vladek. As I say later on, you feel like when you're reading the entirety of section one, there's an overall intent behind it, which is we're all equal now. And we're just saying this in kind of different ways. And I, and, and I, and I think that that's actually correct. I think that's, that's an actual correct reading of Section one of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, just find it interesting when Justice Thomas uses an opinion to just kind of think out loud. <laughs> it's Justice Gorsuch isn't thinking out loud; he's sort of making a moral declaration. And Justice Thomas is using the occasion of the ability to write an opinion that, you know, one of the great things about Supreme Court being a Supreme Court justice is, you know, what you got the power to just kind of. Write what you want to write, and on, not entirely when you want to write it, but you can kind of hang uh, the opportunity to engage in some constitutional theorizing, um, kind of hang it around any given case. I just thought it was interesting. I thought it. I, I thought it was interesting. Thought the discussion was interesting, and everyone on Twitter needs to calm down. That Justice Thomas does not want, uh, does not believe that there is a right to segregate schools in the District of Columbia. That is not what's going on here. Yeah, those takes are annoying. I think that the criticism of the musings part, David, so on the one hand, it's great to hear what the Supreme Court justice thinks about different clauses of the Constitution and the fact that he um, elevates that debate over the citizenship clause 
that nobody was having uh, is a good thing. On the other hand, I think there's a real argument that this proves that they need to be taking more cases on the merits docket. If they've got time to write musings, you've got time to take more cases. <laughs> well said. I like that. Well said. Before we flow into the um, Vladic interview, I'm going to take a point of privilege on one issue. When, I'm gonna, I want to go back to the DeSantis Disney law uh, just for a second. I want to say this once again with feeling. Okay. The fact that I do not have an underlying right to any given state benefit does not mean that that benefit may be revoked by the state for any reason at all. Uh, according, uh, and that does not mean, and let me back up. The fact that I have a right to an underlying state benefit not only doesn't mean that the state doesn't have the ability, has the ability to revoke that for any reason at all. The fact that the Constitution protects explicitly, explicitly my rights to free speech means that the state has to tread in a particular, particularly lightly if it wants to revoke any given benefit because of my speech. And this is a very, very, very basic principle of First Amendment retaliation that has been applied many, many times in American history. Now, it doesn't mean that every time you make a retaliation claim and you can provide some evidence of motivation that your speech was an issue, doesn't mean that every single time you're going to win. Facts matter. Fact patterns matter. The specific benefit matters. So you have to litigate a case to determine the outcome. But there is ample, ample, ample precedent that a company that engages in protected, politically protected speech and is targeted for it, even if it's losing a benefit that it wasn't otherwise entitled to, can state a First Amendment claim. It's all over the place. And so I just was gobsmacked over the weekend at the number of people who know better, Sarah, who know better, acting like this was just absolute, crazy, wild, surrendering to the woke left to cite black letter First Amendment retaliation law. So point of privilege on that. Fair enough, David. Fair enough. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Let's move to our guest. We have the one, the only, Steve Vladek. Professor at University of Texas Law. Uh, we'll just get this out of the way real quick. I mean, J.D. Yale. So, like, it doesn't even really matter for our purposes, you know. Um, Amherst undergrad, which is exciting. He clerked on the Ninth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. So, double appellate clerkship. We, I mean, I don't even think we have time to get into my thesis on double clerkships, but he is part of the problem, obviously. Uh, now, this is the best part, I think, of the bio. 
He lives in uh, central Austin with his wife. They co-host the In Loco Parentis podcast, by the way, uh, which is awesomely funny name and, and great podcast. Um, their daughters, Madeline and Sydney, and their eight-year-old pug, Roxana. So, like, more information on Roxana than, like, do you have to update that every year? I mean, why not? It's a good excuse to keep the bio current. I think that is a good reminder. Like, you're not, nope, I've got to update. It's the dog's <laughs> birthday. That means go to the website. Um, and, Professor, you have your book coming out in a year called The Shadow Docket. Very exciting. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a treat. So, let's... I There's two, like, introductory things we need to start with. One, we've talked a lot about careers in the law, uh, you know, DOJ to public defender to how to become David French, which is its whole own thing. Um, will you give us the short version on the legal academia world? How one goes from you graduate Yale Law School, you clerk a couple times, you don't just raise your hand and say, I want to be a law professor or start with, you know, being an apprentice law professor and uh uh, work your Smith skills until they hire you for the big job. It's it's a very regimented process. Maybe just a couple seconds so that folks understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the coin of the realm is writing. And and so one of the things that I think is beneficial about going to that law school in New Haven um, that my uncle refers to as a law school school um, is that you really do get a lot of chances to write. And so I was coming out of my you know first clerkship with Judge Burzon, I was already pretty well established as a writer. Um, and when you're on a law school hiring committee, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for people who have, you know, a record of scholarship and some reason to believe they're going to keep producing. Um, you know, I actually did the second clerkship as sort of a favor after I was already teaching because Judge Barquette had a couple of vacancies in her chambers. But so maybe I'm not the the terrible double clerker that, that Sarah's worried about. Um, I do think, though, guys, things have changed in the, you know, 400 years since I went on the teaching market. Um, you know, I think it was a lot more feasible back then to do what I did, which was to say to get hired right into a tenure track job from a clerkship. Um, we've seen this proliferation since then of these fellowships, um, whether they're called visiting assistant professor jobs or just teaching fellowships, um, programs like the Clemenco at Harvard, the Bigelow at Chicago. But now there are actually like dozens of them. And I think that has both good and bad Upsides. The good upside of that is that, like, now you don't have to go to Yale, right, to be a, a really visible junior law professor candidate. You can go to Texas. We have some fantastic graduates, actually, who are in the academy. Um, and you can be visible from Texas because these fellowships have this egalitarian effect, at least on where you went to school. The downside is the fellowships don't pay very much. Um, and so you are literally paying a price, right? You are, you know, it is, there are some inequalities in who is most able to bear the literal costs, right, of two to three years of pretty cheap labor um, in that space. So, you know, I, I think the reality is for anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's in law school, thinking about law school, thinking about the legal academy, nothing matters more than writing um, and having ideas, committing the ideas to paper, you know, and thinking about what you want your scholarly agenda to look like. One of the, the interesting things I found years ago, like almost 20 years ago, and I, I injured uh, legal academia for a brief time. I stuck my toe in the pool. I was in the clinical faculty at Cornell Law School. And the thing that I noticed in this, so tell me if this is completely off base. If you want to be in legal academia, you just basically have to say, I'm willing to live anywhere in these United States of America. 
In other words, it's not like when you're getting out of law school or you're finishing a clerkship and you say, you know, I'm going to live in Nashville. And so I'm targeting Vanderbilt and Belmont or the Nashville School of Law. And the jobs are scarce enough that if you want to get into this, you just sort of have to say the, the 50 states and perhaps to, I don't know if Guam has a law school, uh, but if any territory has a law school, that's my market. Puerto, Puerto Rico does. Puerto Rico does. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so David, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's not quite as bad as other academic jobs because um, there are more law professor jobs right. than there are, say, philosophy or history jobs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when you go on the market, you really do have to have this calculus about what matters, right? Geographic specificity or getting a job somewhere. Um, and I was tremendously lucky. I mean, I was 24 when I went on the academic market. Um, I had no commitments to anywhere. And so, and, and I got an offer from Miami, uh, a city where I think plenty of folks would be yeah. perfectly happy to end up um, in that space. Um, but I had an interview with Akron, um, you know, like that would have been a fascinating uh, place to start. I think, so I think it's like everything else in life, it is a question of balancing your priorities. If teaching above all is what you want, then yes, you could end up in, you know, um, my, my friend Johanna Kalb is now the dean at Idaho, um, right? You could end up in Moscow, Idaho, um, right? Um, that's great. Um, if you are committed to a particular geographic place, then you have to be a bit sort of more willing to accept that it's going to take maybe a couple of years to find a job, right? That you can't just go on the market the first time. So as with everything in life, I think it's just a question of what are your priorities and what are what is your ability to be flexible versus your familial, personal, financial commitments? Speaking of priorities and flexibility, you also can, I think, enlighten us on um, some of the the, I don't even want to describe it, actually. Tell us about your constitutional ideology and describe how it might be different from one Samuel Alito. <laughs> um, Justice Alito and I I, I, I mean, I think we're like mirror images of the same person. Um, uh, so, well, let's start with the most important fact, which is that he roots for the Phillies. Um, and I'm yeah. a Mets fan. And, and this is, so this is why I think... There. I think we could never be friends. Um, right. But, you know, I think the reality is I, I think of myself, you know, first and foremost as a Fed courts person more than a con law person. Um, but insofar as I'm a con law person, I really think there's a lot to be said for, you know, an approach I most regularly associate with Justice Kagan, um, that, you know, we care about text. We care about what the founders intended. We care about, you know, the structure of the Constitution and not just what's like good policy. Um I think it's just that we don't find nearly as much of the text conclusive um, as my dear friend Justice Alito does. And we don't think that, you know, looking only at the letter of the text is the be all end all. You know, case in point, just to take one area that I don't think sorts people on ideological lines, the war powers. Um, right. I spent a lot of time early in my career writing about studying the war powers, where if you look at founding era understandings, it's pretty darn clear Um Two different things that we would be shocked at today. One, that Congress, not the president, would be the dominant mover um, in the area of war powers. And two, that the militia and not the standing army would be the dominant response force for everything except, you know, full-scale foreign wars. Um, those are both completely, you know, sort of lost to us today um, in ways that I think are important to both understand and appreciate, like, are inconsistent with some founding era originalist approaches to this kind of methodology. So I would say I am a, you know, sort of a Kagan-esque um, uh, textualist um, in the sense that, I, you know, I think text matters, but I also think the text is 
inconclusive a lot more often than some of my friends like Justice Alito. So let, let's make this concrete in a much more relevant uh, context. So, for example, how does one approach? Well, you know, let's let's just go there. We've got Dobbs. We've got Dobbs coming. So how does a, a person who is looking at the text and the uh, history of the Constitution uh, like and and I'm I'm pretty much I'm pretty much with you on war powers actually I'm I am I got a whole album side on that <laughs> um, but uh, so let let's dive in you know so the Constitution on its face is silent on abortion um, how does how does a person uh, with your from from your juris, jurisprudential background approach that question. So I think the, the this is probably too long for the podcast, but I think the short answer is we have to <laughs> we, we have to start with the slaughterhouse cases. I mean, I think part of the problem is that modern conversations about substantive due process often happen in a vacuum where we don't talk enough about how the Supreme Court denuded the provision of the Fourteenth Amendment that was most obviously meant to deal with unenumerated fundamental rights. Um, and so I actually, you know, I think there's a lot, for example, in Justice Thomas's concurrence in McDonald versus City of Chicago, that's exactly right about how our doctrine, our jurisprudence, even David, the way we talk about abortion um, has been messed up by the fact that the Supreme Court rendered the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment a virtual dead letter in 1873 so that we've had to shoehorn two different doctrines, incorporation, right, mm -hmm. applying different provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states and implied fundamental rights into a constitutional provision that was not possibly meant to deal with them, right, the Due Process Clause. And so I guess I would start any conversation about abortion with a conversation about what were the privileges or immunities of citizenship um, and how did the Supreme Court botch that in 1873. And I'll just say, like, I think there's a lot to commend both the Bradley and Field dissents in Slaughterhouse where there's room clearly for judges and justices to recognize fundamental rights not enumerated in the Constitution through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And I think we have a further textual hook for that in the Ninth Amendment. So I just I think the whole conversation tends to have this very sort of um, truncated, anachronistic feel to it because we tend to sort of start the conversation in 1973 or even 65 with Griswold and Roe and not talk about what happens in the, you know, 100 years between Slaughterhouse and Roe, the 93 years between Slaughterhouse and Griswold, where the court is trying to reinvent a jurisprudence that had a much more natural home that the court itself was responsible for demolishing. And if you're listening at home, you might be thinking, well, we've had since 1873 to fix this problem. Why haven't the Privileges and Immunities Clause come back? And um, I think there's interesting debates around that. But one of the really simple explanations is that both political sides, and I don't mean Democrat or Republican, but sort of both ideological sides um, of the legal debates, both fear how the other side will use the privileges or immunities clause if it is brought back. Because frankly, saying, um, uh, you know, the courts will safeguard all the privileges and immunities of citizenship, I don't know the full extent of what that would mean. But for instance, um, you know, the right obviously fears, and again, I mean the legal right, not the political right. Um, the right obviously fears that the left will use it for abortion at all. Um, but the left fears that the right will use it for these economic rights, um, licensing regimes, administrative state uh, regulations that can be struck down saying, well, um, it is a, a privilege or right of citizenship to be a florist without having a license in the state of Louisiana. 
Um, so are we ever, like, is there any hope for moving forward on P&I or are we just going to sit here and it'll be a fun podcast topic for our grandkids? <laughs> I mean, I thought I thought McDonald was the inflection point on that, Sarah. I mean, right? The you know Stevens. But it's been a while. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but right. I mean, so Justice Stevens says all but overtly in McDonald that he agrees with Thomas about slaughterhouse. That he agrees that this is the clearly the right way to think about the the original purpose of this preservation clause. And then Stevens says, but 137 years of precedent, right, is a lot of water under the bridge. Um, and and I think you know there's re- this is why when I teach con law. And when I teach Fed course, I really try to show my students that it's really hard to have these conversations in the abstract. That if you think of doctrine as like a body of water, as like a river, the Supreme Court keeps dumping boulders into the river that change the direction of the doctrine. Um, and it's hard to know sort of where the river should have been going if you don't talk about all the boulders, if you don't talk about all the obstacles that the doctrine has evolved to move around. So I, I think that's right. I, I think that, you know, there's reason for folks on all sides to be wary of overruling Slaughterhouse. Um, I just think that the, to me, the more important point for the contemporary conversation is that recognizing this history complicates the sort of talking point that, oh, well, abortion's not in the Constitution. Like, I mean, of course it's not. A lot of things are not in the Constitution that folks who say that line nevertheless think are protected by the Constitution. That's not how we do constitutional interpretation. And so, you know, yes, it is absolutely bizarre that we have two very different doctrines that have nothing to do with due process, that are manifested through, reflected in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, that they're in the wrong part of the Constitution, though, does not mean that they're not compelled by the Constitution in the abstract. You know, the interesting thing about, to me, about the 14th Amendment and privileges or immunities, parts of the 14th Amendment, you you pull out the phrase privileges or immunities, and it reminds me of the movie um, Blades of Glory. Did you ever see that? Um, that, that's the, that's a class, it's a cinematic classic. It, it stars Will Ferrell and, uh, Josh Heater from Napoleon Dynamite. And they're the first all male pairs figure skating team. And there's this moment where they're trying to decide, Sarah, stop shaking your head. This is, this is going somewhere. Um, there's this moment where, uh, they're describing what kind of song they're going to skate to. And the, uh, one of them suggests "My Humps" by Black. What? What? Who? Who did that one? Was that uh, My, the Black Eyed Peas? You were Black right. Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, yeah. And um, Will Ferrell's advocating that, and they said, "But nobody. It, what does it even mean?" And Will Ferrell says, "Nobody knows what it means, but it's provocative. It gets the people going, and it feels like some of the the privileges or immunities. It." What does it mean, privileges or immunities? But nobody really knows, but it's provocative and it gets the people going. And um, it, it, you know, not to say that there are drafting problems with the 14th Amendment, but there appear to be some drafting problems with the 14th Amendment. The overall thrust seems to be clear, which is we want to get past this notion that there are just different classes of citizens in the United States and different classes of people um, in this sort of post-slavery world. There, there are no longer different classes of people. And yet there was sort of a, a, a small wall of words thrown in that direction, equal protection, privileges or immunities, due process. And we're kind of left to sort it out. Um, and, and I think the, the one answer to you, on the, one of the answers to you on the abortion issue is, okay, I, I got it. I understand your privileges or immunities reasoning, but there's also another human being involved here. 
what are the privileges or immunities? What's the equal protection? What are the due process rights of the unborn child um, under that analysis? Do they exist? Is it acknowledged? Um, are they acknowledged? And that that would be, you know, that that would be. I, I get your privileges or immunities analysis, and I think a lot of it's pretty interesting. Um, and like I said, in many areas, I'm I'm kind of there with you. But I think one of the things that makes abortion complicated is that there's another human being involved. Sir, I mean, I mean so I, I, without sort of going deep on fetal personhood, I mean, I do think that <laughs> everyone, I think, agrees, David, mm-hmm. that there's certainly another interest involved. I mean, we're, right. you know, without, without sort of defining when life begins, because that's above my pay grade. Um, I just think that the, saying it's complicated, David, I think is actually really important. Yes, it's complicated, and complicated is mm-hmm. okay. Um, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the you know, the I mean, the, the, the whole sort of the anti-federalists, right, screamed at the federalists um, about how, you know, we're really worried about sort of the fact that there are no rights in the Constitution, even though there actually is at least one. Um, mm-hmm. And the federalists said, don't worry about it. Like if we because as James Iredell says, if we start writing down some rights, you guys right. are going to turn around and argue that the ones we didn't write down aren't there. Um, and the anti-federalists said, no, no, no. That's why we have the Ninth Amendment. Right. And so, you know, I, I just I yes, it's complicated. I'm not trying to say this is easy, but the notion that it's I mean, I think that's an important insight in both directions in this debate. Um, and that and that whatever privileges or immunities are and whatever they mean, that both the drafters of the Constitution originally and the drafters of the Fourteenth Amendment understood it would be the courts that were given content to these ideas and not just the the states and the legislatures. Okay, we gotta get to the main course. Roberts has lost control of the Supreme Court. I didn't write the headline. <laughs> I, so, and you have no idea how sympathetic I am to that because I published something about the voting rights um, laws and in Politico and didn't write the headline and got endless grief about the headline. And I was like, right. again, I, uh, so. Um, <laughs> Been there on that one too. Yeah. Dear listeners, when people publish stuff, almost never. Uh, write the headline or even get to see the headline before it's published. Um, it's like a, it's a, it's a, not a Christmas surprise, more like an Easter egg that has um, <laughs> peeps in it. Uh, like what a waste of an Easter egg. Sometimes even a cockroach. But given that, <laughs> and obviously we'll put in the show notes for everyone to read. Um, why don't you summarize your piece. Although, honestly, I could just read the whole thing out loud because every paragraph um, is really important to your argument. But uh, you try because I don't want to even try. So, I mean, the short version is not that John Roberts has lost control of the court. That happened the day that Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. Um, right. The short version is that we are seeing Chief Justice Roberts increasingly assert his hostility to the other five conservatives only and specifically in the context of you know, what Will Bowden and I call the shadow docket, what Justice Alito calls the emergency docket. Who cares what it's called? Call it the banana docket. It doesn't matter. Um, but that what we're, where, where we're seeing Roberts distance himself from the other conservatives is almost exclusively in the context of these, you know, generally unsigned, unexplained orders. Um, and the provocation for the op-ed was the one the court handed down um, on April 6th in the Clean Water Act case in Louisiana versus American Rivers, you know, it was the seventh time, guys, that Chief Justice Roberts has been part of a 5-4 split where he goes with the liberals on a shadow docket order since Justice Barrett was confirmed. Um, But it was the first time in all of those where he didn't just dissent, 
but where he joined the liberals in criticizing the majority's procedural shortcuts, right? It was the first time that he actually, you know, to, to quote Justice Kavanaugh from the February Alabama voting rights case, where he used the worn out rhetoric of the shadow docket. Um, and I think that's telling. Because, you know, I think for as long as this has been an issue, I, I think there really has been the sense that it's divided people along classic ideological or partisan lines, where it's the liberals who are complaining about the shadow documents, the conservatives who are defending it. Here's John Roberts, um, who, with all respect to my friends on right-wing social media, is not a liberal. Um, and he's not just dissenting in these cases, but he's actually now for the first time joining Justice Kagan and criticizing the majority not for the outcome in these cases, but for the procedural shortcuts that the that the court's taking. And David and I have talked a lot about uh, the shadow docket, the emergency docket. We sort of use both terms interchangeably. I don't I we're like agnostic as to as to which to use, I guess. They're now both so laden with opinions of their own of what it means when you use the terms. Um, Wait, can, I, can I put in one plug for not using emergency docket? Right. Like, okay. like. I, I don't like I think Professor because your point is it's not an emergency. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Actually, to be fair. So that's I think that's in the eye of the beholder, Sarah. But I think, you know, the problem is that the emergency orders that are such a visible part of this are actually not what either Will Bode or I mean entirely. Right. That that shadow docket's an umbrella term for a whole universe of what the Supreme Court does that includes but is not limited to emergency applications, whether or not you think these are real emergencies. So so my objection to emergency docket is not. Uh, the fight over is this really an emergency? Um, it's that the emergency docket isn't the entire shadow docket as either will or I understand it. You know what? I can't help myself. No, I have to dive in on this a little bit because I think that's such a good point. But it seems to me that your main criticism is with the emergency docket part and not with the rest of the shadow docket because the shadow docket includes. Uh, whether you get additional time uh, to file that brief, whether so-and-so gets to file, you know, is denied to file an amicus, um, the cert denials, the cert grants. You don't have a bunch of beef with those being like not having opinions to go with them um, or being somewhat inscrutable. I mean, some of that just has to happen and it kind of has to be inscrutable to some extent or else it's turtles all the way down. Your beef is with the emergency docket, though I completely agree with you that the shadow docket is like nine times the size of the emergency docket. So let me just say, I think my beef is mostly with the emergency docket. I actually do think that there are pieces of the non-emergency part of the story that are still relevant. So, you know, for example, the Supreme Court in the um, Alabama voting cases and in the North Carolina affirmative action cases granted cert before judgment. Um, something that used to be something that the court did once every 20 years, right? I mean, the between the Youngstown steel seizure case in 1952 and like the Nixon Watergate tapes case, the court hadn't done it once, um, right? Um, the court hadn't granted cert before judgment once, I think, in John Roberts' first like 14 terms on the court. And now they've done it 16 times in the last, you know, three years. So, you know, Sarah, there are other things. I mean, the SB8 case, right, when Justice Gorsuch um, sends the case back to the Fifth Circuit as opposed to the district court, even though the parties are fighting over where the remand should be, that's an order that has substantive effects. Um, when the court decides when to schedule argument for a case, whether to squeeze it into this term or push it to next term, that's an order that produces substantive effects. So, yes, I think most of the mischief that I've been documenting is on the emergency docket, but not all of it. And, and I think these trends are, I, I, this is not a large point, but I just think that like it's worth thinking about how all of the things the court does that produce substantive effects beyond right the big fancy opinions we get every spring um, ought to receive more attention, whether you think they're 
by the book or not. Well, you know, I, from my perspective, some it's completely obvious that something has fundamentally changed in this sense. Because, And I've said this before on this podcast. My constitutional practice was 90 percent, 90 plus percent injunction based. In other words, I'm going in, I'm seeking a preliminary. I file I would file a complaint with a motion for a preliminary injunction attached. So that that's how I would start a case. You win or lose on the, you know, if you lose the injunction motion, you appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals. And then win or lose there, you would have this question about, do I go on bunk or do I not? But there was not, even if the case was getting tons of media attention and if it was, there was an unfolding circuit split, the you it was not in your mind that I'm on a rocket docket to the Supreme Court. That was just not on your mind. It was all of a sudden, once right. a cert petition is filed, the, it was like throwing a whole beach full of sand in the gears. Whereas now it's become, whereas now it's become routinized. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, that is, and, and on some cases I get it. I, in some cases I get it. There are, there are issues of such importance um, that the Supreme Court's just got away in, um, you know, when you have something unfolding in the midst of a pandemic, like questions about vaccine mandates, time is of the essence. Got it. Got it. But it's much more common than it used to be. And it feels to me that a number of justices now are saying, we've gone too far. I mean, you, you've seen this in some of the Kavanaugh's. Uh, Kavanaugh. Okay. Regular order now, guys. Regular order now, guys. On at least a couple of the vaccine cases. So, um, do you think they're? Do you think they're going to start to pull back? So, I mean, David, I think they already have. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we, we've seen a number of sort of small signs this term that the justices are, if not reacting to the criticism, at least feeling pressure internally on this front. Um, there's the Barrett Kavanaugh concurrence in the main healthcare worker vaccine case in October, right. where Barrett says, "Just because we're sympathetic to you on the merits doesn't mean we should grant emergency relief." To which my yeah. response is, "Then go back and explain the entire October 2020 term." Right. There's the oral argument in the vaccine mandate cases. The first time the court sat on bonk for an emergency application argument. So far as I can tell, David, since 1971, um, certainly since the 70s. Steve, that just just quickly, that's because we called for that. I just I just want you to know that we called for them to do oral arguments. Yeah. Not realizing it would ruin my family's Christmas and New Year's. I mean, you, you guys weren't alone. I mean, some of these solutions are pretty obvious. Um, yeah. The court also, guys, I mean, the court, the Texas um, uh, religious efficient in the execution chamber case, Ramirez, you know, that's an issue that as recently as a year and a half ago, the court would have resolved on the shadow docket. They kicked it to the merits docket. Um, the court's own rules, there was a rule proposal that the court issued in March to actually for the first time formalize how you file amicus briefs. Um, in support of shadow docket or against shadow docket application. So I, I think there's no question they're responding. I'm not sure they've actually fully instantiated the actual criticism. I mean, so in the OSHA vaccine case, for example, you know, at the end of the unsigned majority opinion, the court, the court summarizes what both sides framed as the trade-offs from blocking the rule, not blocking the rule, and says it's not our job to balance these trade-offs. To which my response is, on an emergency application, that is literally your job. That is all your job is on an emergency application is to balance the trade-offs. So I think we're seeing sort of marginal indications, David, that they are hearing some of these criticisms, but we're still seeing like the Alabama redistricting case, right, where the court puts back into effect these maps that two different district courts had struck down with no analysis whatsoever. Right. We're seeing, you know, the Clean Water Act case from April 
ditto, right? Putting back into effect this controversial Trump era rule, no analysis whatsoever. So my my concern is that so long as the court is continuing to do this, and by this I mean granting emergency relief without explanations in ways that they're expecting lower courts to follow, you know, this is going to continue to be a problem, even if, David, you and I might agree that there are at least some number of cases warranting emergency intervention from the justices. Okay, so what do you do? Because by- I write a book. <laughs> Indeed, and exactly so. Um, let's take the Navy SEAL vaccine mandate case. The lower court says that the Navy SEALs do not need to be vaccinated to be deployed. And um, this this is a loose summary. Um, and the government's, you know, the military is like, yeah. the what the roof? Um, <laughs> Have you read and, Goldman versus Weinberger, they say. Um, and the Supreme Court says, yeah, th- someone has to win this in the interim while the case is being decided. And in the interim, we think that the we the status quo goes to the military, whatever the military wants gets to be the status quo because we're talking about deployments and life and death situations. So what do you do if you get rid of the shadow docket? And I know that's not what you want exactly is to get rid of it, obviously. But um, even if you change it substantially, what you are doing is leaving in place appellate court decisions. For the most part, they're appellate court decisions set aside your cert before judgment uh, stuff um, that are not wrong in the merits, but maybe wrong in terms of where the status quo should lie before the merits are decided. So how does Steve Vladek fix it? So so let me just say, I mean, I, I, this is a common response I get, which is, oh, you know, you just want, you know, you just don't like the results. Um, so the Navy SEALs case is a great example. I think it's exactly the right result and exactly emblematic of everything that's wrong with how the court handles the shadow docket. Um, right, where, you know, what was wrong with what the court did? Well, there's actually legal debate about how RIFRA intersects with Goldman versus Weinberger, right, about the sort of whether RIFRA overrides the deference we historically give to the military in the context of religious exercise. Um, that's an open question. And so what would I have liked to see the court do? Issue the exact same relief with a seven-page opinion that says the government is seeking a partial stay, Here are the factors we consider when deciding whether to grant a partial stay. Here's why we believe those factors are satisfied in this case. Um, A good example of that, right, the CDC eviction moratorium. It's exactly what the court did with the CDC eviction moratorium, where I think they got the result wrong because I read Section 361 differently than they do, but where I thought that they did it procedurally by the book. And so this is, you know, this is where I think the criticisms of me are really, I think, too superficial. Like, my problem is not with the shadow docket. The Supreme Court has to have a shadow docket. It could not function without it. My problem is not with granting emergency relief on the shadow docket. There are all kinds of examples of cases, both historically and today, where I suspect we would all agree it's necessary, right? The issue is the court granting emergency relief so much more often in ways that affect so many more people while hewing to the traditional mode of not providing any explanation. And so I would like that's what was missing to me in the Navy SEALs case was even a modicum of analysis. Okay, I want to see if Steve Vladek and I can get in violent agreement on something. I think that the traditional stay standards, likelihood of success on the merits, number one, and irreparable injury, number two, my two main beefs. I think these are useless factors at this point that they should all be tossed out and we should start over and build new factors. One of the factors should be the one that Justice Kavanaugh um, and Justice Barrett, I believe, signed on as well. And I might have them flipped and you'll know better than I. Um, 
shoehorn into likelihood of success on the merits, which is likelihood that we would take cert on this case. That's not likelihood of success on the merits to me. That's a different factor and an important one probably. Um, But it is separate. Likelihood of success on the merits shouldn't be one at all, in my view. Um, In irreparable injury, usually both sides have something close to irreparable injury, or we need to redefine irreparable. Right now, it's just that economic harm doesn't count as irreparable, except when it does. Um, and I, I think we can come up with better factors. What do you think? So I, I, I'm in violent disagreement with you that we, uh, sorry, violent agreement with you that we can come up with better factors. Um, two quick notes, though. One, um, likelihood of granting cert is already one of the factors, um, right? So I think the court could just be more candid about that. Two, the factors are statutory interpretation, um, right? That the court is interpreting its statutory authority when it applies these factors. If there's something wrong with the factors, and Sarah, I agree completely that the court has turned irreparable harm into a mush. Um, If there's something wrong with the factors, that's a question of statutory interpretation, where the court has historically said superstare decisis, right? Um, If there's a problem, hey, if only there was a body, that could modify the court's statutory jurisdiction. If only that's how this had worked for the first 200 years, where whenever the Supreme Court thought there was a problem with its jurisdictional statutes, it went to Congress. The Judiciary Act of 1925 is literally known as the Judges' Bill because it was basically written and lobbied for by Taft. Um, and so, you know, I, I, again, I, I think I'm often caricatured. Um, I suspect, including by some of the folks listening to this podcast, for just being this hippy-dippy liberal who thinks everything the conservatives do is wrong. Um, When the reality is, like, I think there's a lot of useful institutional stuff here that the shadow docket paper of the last four or five years reveals that suggests that one of the things that we really ought to all be talking about is structural reassessment, structural reforms to the Supreme Court's entire docket Sarah, perhaps including the stay standard under 2101F. So, you know, that's a conversation that I think is exactly the one we ought to be having. And it's a conversation that I wish more of the justices would publicly endorse, as opposed to complaining about the worn out rhetoric of the shadow docket. I don't think the rhetoric is worn out. Um, I think it's just that, like, you know, everyone who I think feels that way often doesn't fully understand what the criticisms are. Well, David and I believe nothing, if not that Congress (laughs) <laughs> needs to do more and that the courts and the presidency need to do less. Somebody must is going to think that we slipped you a little extra cash to rant against Congress congressional inaction. Well, if, you, if, uh, you've read, if you've read any of my scholarship, you would, you would see that it's been going on for a while. <laughs> Professor Vladek, thank you so much. I, this was super helpful. We'll put the piece in the show notes and uh, you can pre-order the book on Amazon at some point in the at future. At some point. We will flag when you can. Um, I'll tweet about it, so you can find me there. Guys, thanks so much for having me. You bet. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That's incredibly nice of him to join us. Great conversation. Look forward to reading uh, listener comments on the conversation. Sometimes the listener comments and subscribe to the dispatch so that you can comment. Um, listener comments on our, on our interviews are always interesting. They always 
often bring up something that we should have talked about more, but he had limited time. So I apologize that we kind of hit top line stuff, but let me wind up with a, a pop culture recommendation. Sarah went to the movies Saturday night and saw the unbearable weight of massive talent. This was, this is the Nicolas Cage movie where, and Pedro Pascal is his co-star. And I don't want to talk too much about it because, but anyway, Nicolas Cage is hired by Pedro Pascal, Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage, playing Nicolas Cage with financial troubles, which is playing Nicolas Cage, uh, is hired by a mysterious guy for a million dollars to show up at a birthday party. It's so stinking funny and hilarious. And we had just a great time at the movies. So the unbearable I saw the trailer way for this and I've been wanting to watch it. So is it only theaters or can I just pay a premium and watch it at home? Cause I'm not going to a theater. Let's be honest. No, it's only theaters. It's only theaters, but you won't, I'm sure you won't have to wait too long, but if you do go to theaters and I I'm still, I'm going out to theaters and this is the first non IMAX movie that I've seen in my going out to theaters during and post pandemic, but it's so funny. It's so good. Really enjoyed it. So, um, the yeah. trailer is amazing. You should put the trailer in the show notes because the trailer alone is, and Pedro Pascal, uh, I first met him, I guess for Narcos, right? When he was, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. in that season of Narcos and just right away, you're like, this guy's a star. He's amazing. I don't want to look away. And then he did become a star Mandalorian and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. He was, uh, and a tremendous season of Game of Thrones. Like he was, he was a scene stealer in Game of Thrones. Right. Yeah. So go see the movie. It's fantastic. All right. Well, this has been good, solid podcasting today, Sarah, if I, if I, we don't say so ourselves. Oh, and for those asking whether I've just permanently adopted the Elizabeth Holmes voice. No, I just <laughs> permanently adopted viral problems in my system and am still sick. So that's right. I've been sick for nearly six weeks now. Ugh. Ugh, so sorry. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Um, but yet you soldier on providing well, that. Per- thanks to Caleb. Like you guys don't even know how bad this podcast is because Caleb edits it, uh, edits out my insane coughing, nose blowing. Uh, on one of the dispatch podcasts, David, I was, you know, using cough drops the whole time last week. And someone in the comment section was like, Sarah sounds like she was sucking on a cough drop the whole time. And I'm like, literally what I was doing. <laughs> That's yeah, not a sick well, burn. That's just an accurate description. Did you go down to Galveston like people did in the 18th century to have the cleaner air? Yeah, the vapors. I'm here yeah. for the vapors. And you know what? <laughs> nice. It actually, I feel better today than I have felt this whole time. So it's working. That salt water is, is really helping. Well, and I imagine that DC right now is pollen central, which unfortunately Texas also has the cedars that have invaded moving from Austin to Houston. Um, so it's a little hard to say, like, I don't think the cedars have made it to Galveston though. So I'm good. Well, take care of yourself and we'll be back Thursday and hopefully Sarah will be much better by then. But until then, please go rate us where you get podcasts. Please subscribe where you get podcasts. And please check out thedispatch.com.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.